Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Here at Sakara, our core mission is to transform lives by putting people in the driver's seat of their own health. Even though that's a huge mission and one we're so honored to be on, we knew that we wanted to take it a step farther in making that mission a reality by helping the next generation to transform their health as healthy children grow up to be healthy adults. In a world where not only adults are getting sicker and sicker with the disease, but our children are too, it's become essential for us to get involved with the younger generation. To do so, we formed a partnership with Wellness in the Schools, who we refer to as WITS in this episode. They're a national nonprofit committed to eliminating obesity-related disease that begins in childhood, and we've made it our mission to get healthy food into the hands of children and to teach them the importance of nutrition and healthy food. Today, we're joined by executive director and founder of Wellness in the Schools, Nancy Easton, to discuss how together we're working to serve over 70 underserved schools across New York City to transform the way children have access to and learn about food. In support of this, we've also joined forces with the Department of Education and Mayor Eric Adams to join their Chef's Council to bring our healthy, plant-forward, Saqqara-style meals into schools. We're also joined by Maya Feller, who sits on the board of Wellness in the Schools and is also an esteemed member of our own Saqqara Science and Advisory Council. She is the lead dietitian and founder of a Brooklyn-based nutrition practice, an author and former adjunct professor at NYU. You've also probably seen her on some of the morning shows like Good Morning America, where she often provides nutrition education from an anti-bias, patient-centered, culturally sensitive approach. We can't wait for you to listen to this episode, so please join us in welcoming Maya and Nancy. Nancy and Maya, thank you so much for joining us on the Sakara Life Podcast. This is a very special episode, and obviously the work you both do is very near and dear to mine and Whitney's hearts. Um, we like to start off every single podcast asking about your mission, even though I think Whitney and I are pretty familiar uh, with your missions. But can you tell our listeners, what is your mission here on earth? What are you here to do, here to give? Nancy, do you want to start off? Sure. Thank you. I'll start. I love that's pretty powerful, your mission on earth. I could talk about my work mission, which t- which ties fully with my life mission, and that is to feed children good food and to help children to be more active and it, it really comes from from my own upbringing. I was raised in South Florida, as I was saying earlier, and I was raised by a mom who was called Nature Lady very fondly by by my neighbors. Um, we were in a suburb of Miami by my by my friends, and my mom convinced the local athletic club to sell grapefruits and oranges instead of 
candies. Um, and so we had crates and cases of grapefruit and oranges in our carport. And eventually they, we either sold them or they rotted. She also brought chickens to be raised so we would have fresh farm eggs. And again, this is, this is a Miami suburb. So, and yeah, that story goes that the, the, the possums were kind of interested in the chickens. So at some point my mom built a chicken coop and the possums got in, the chickens didn't get out. So we, we did not, we no longer had the farm fresh eggs, but that was sort of my upbringing. And I share that. And also being in South Florida, just I was running around playing and, you know, doing sports. We didn't call it exercise. We were just having fun all day long. And so that was my upbringing and sort of fast forward that to being a teacher and then a principal and a a school in the Lower East Side of Manhattan and, you know, watching children come into school with a bag of chips and a bottle of soda for breakfast and not being able to walk a flight of stairs without having to catch their breath and not being able to focus in class and really contrasting my own Yes, privileged upbringing and what I was seeing in high poverty communities in New York City. And I thought something's wrong with this. This is not fair. And I want to change that. And so that's really sort of the background to when you ask such a powerful question, giving you a little bit more of a, a powerful answer with a story. Thank you. Yeah, that that really helps us to see how you're doing the work that you're doing today and love hearing that background. Maya, what about you? So, yeah, you know, I think that like my life mission and my work mission, they're aligned, but maybe different. So um, my work mission as a dietitian is really to help people kind of reduce their risk of developing non-communicable conditions. And this is like across the lifespan in the world, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, it's completely on the rise. We're just... Our population is getting increasingly sick with these chronic conditions. And, you know, as, as a dietitian, I really want to be a part of the group that is helping to, you know, educate people around nutrition and sustainable nutrition. Um, and then also part of the group that's helping with access. Now, like in my life mission, I'm a mom, so that's definitely up there on the list of, you know, raising really uh, heart-centered humans. Um, but what I would say is what I've learned probably as a dietitian is that there are all these systems that are in place that make it really hard for people to actualize themselves and to make changes around nutrition. And so... Uh, I think that my life mission is changing and transforming into being a system changer, you know, someone who helps to make food, nutrition, uh, equitable living accessible. Beautiful. I love how your personal missions are so tied up in what you're doing every single day. And, you know, Nancy, hearing where this came from, you know, when you were a child, it makes the work that you're, you guys are doing with WITS, you know, even more important when we remember the impact of our childhood on our entire life and, and the things that we learn and the habits we learn um, around nutrition, but anything related to, to lifestyle and culture and emotional mental health. And so can you outline exactly what the work is you're, you're doing with WITS um, and kind of where it came from, because, you know, I know that the, the kind of uh, the seed of providing school lunches to children came from a really good place, but how did we, how did we end up here? How did we end up in a place where ketchup is a vegetable? 
And Maya can probably speak to this uh, much more eloquently than I can. And and I should share our big, bold vision, um, which is, yes, also my my mission here on earth. But And the big, bold vision is to eliminate obesity-related illnesses that begin in childhood. And um, and we start we work in, in, with school lunch because, as Maya also said earlier, it's an access issue. This is not a shame and blame issue. <laughs> you know, um, It's not a choice from so many people on so many children that this is what they have access to. This is what's available to them. This is, um, and it's a cost issue, right? So yeah, the school lunch program, as you said, started with, you know, real great intentions. It was in the 40s when our country was at war and we did not have strong enough young men and women to fight for our country. And so this was a government program. It still is a government federally funded program. I mean, and I think the answer is quite simple. The school lunch only mimics what is happening in our country, as Maya said. You know, heart disease and diabetes has only gotten, is it, you know, tripled um, since we were young children? And um, it's, and we all know it's preventable. Um, and that, you know, diet and exercise and environment play such a huge role. And so it's something that we can change. And so, it, so yes, to answer your question, it's, it's that the, the processed and packaged food is, um, you know, again, also sort of good intentions. You know, women were going into the workforce in the 70s. Let's make it easier for them to work and also raise a family and feed their families. Let's give them a TV dinner. You know, so these, you know, again, concept may be a good one, but then now understanding the impact of packaged and processed foods. Um, and that's what's become really the norm and certainly with, with school lunch. So for us, it's, you know, this one meal or maybe two or three even, breakfast and supper, is possibly the one hot, warm, delicious meal that many children, 75% of the children in this in New York City, um, have available to them, they have access to. Um, that important word, access. And so why not make that meal scratch cooked and culturally relevant and plant forward? And that's what we're working on today with the um, Department of Education, Office of Food and Nutrition Services. So that is my quick history of school lunch, answering your question, and I'm kind of tying it to why we do. How many kids yeah. are eating school lunch these days? Well, there are 32 million in this country. Um, and again, to sort of there's this this number they use about 22 million of those children fall b- below a po- the poverty line, which is what their family making a certain income. So when I talk about relying on this meal, I, I mean that seriously. And, and you know, so in this country, why shouldn't that meal? It's not a privilege. It's a right for all children. And school meals get they take the brunt of it and they get criticized left and right, but it's simply only a symptom of what you're seeing everywhere, right? You know, in every corner and every community um, and every lunchbox that children brings to school, but it's only a symptom of our larger culture and our larger problem. And Maya, can you talk about like, what are some of the manifestations of, you know, all this processed food not just in school lunches, obviously, but in the world, um, at the grocery store, you know, on airplanes. I was just on a plane with my kids last night and it's like, they get on and they say, we have pretzels, we have cookies. And I'm like, why do you have to say that? Because then my four-year-old's going to be like, I want pretzels, but I packed her a lunch. So it's like, I can't even, you know, parents who like myself are privileged and also I have the nutritional background and I'm doing my best. I find it nearly impossible. Um, so, you know, what 
what are kids kind of eating in school lunches these days? And what are some of like the biggest deficiencies that we're facing? So I have to rewind a tiny bit and unpack some terminology. Um, so oftentimes, right, we think about processed foods, we think about packaged goods, and this is something that we talk about like in the nutrition sphere, as you know, um, but just clarifying the nuance there, right? So an apple, once it gets picked from the tree, is processed, right? Because everything goes through some level of processing. And so I'm really careful when I have that nutrition conversation and I say pot processed or packaged to actually further clarify what we're really talking about is foods that are not in their whole and minimally processed form, but we're talking with, about foods that are not nutrient dense and have an abundance of added sugars added salts, saturated and synthetic fats, because those are really the ones that contribute to the metabolic dysfunction. As Nancy was saying, you know, we're, there's, there's really this question of access and the question of systems. Uh, you know, a paper just came out recently saying that actually nutrition alone is not going to shift the rising tide of diabetes in this country because there's so many systemic inequities. Um, and it's interesting because it goes back to, and this is not a partisan issue, and I've been crisscrossing the United States the last two months, talking to farmers, sitting with people, having conversations around nutrition, and it's not a partisan issue, this is a people issue, right? This is an issue about what do we prioritize for putting on the plates of people within this country? What do we prioritize in terms of funding for what farmers are getting? And let's be 100% clear, if we don't have farmers, we have absolutely nothing because we're talking about food that needs to get into our body and food that's nutrient dense comes from farms, right? Yes, there are 100% packaged goods that are fine, right? But they're generally not the center of our pattern of eating. And that's where we've gone awry. Chips, cakes, cookies, candy, those are once in a while things. The challenge is that what we need is for subsidies to be in place so that people have access to nutrient-dense foods at the same price point as chips, crackers, cakes, and cookies. Because otherwise, we can't ever have the correct conversation. We're going to just be saying, well, what you should eat is X, when in fact, if we're working with marginalized communities and people who have experienced food apartheid, systemic racism, gender inequality, we're always going back to, well, it's your fault, just as Nancy says, it's not. Right. So the systems have to shift, which is one reason why I say if we look at the work that WITS is doing, they're going in there. We're being system changers. Right. And these partnerships are about changing what's accessible and also changing that hierarchy around what shows up on people's plates. Um, so I think that, you know, I hope that answered the question, right? I feel like uh, I feel like it's so multifactorial and layered because it's this basket that is really intertwined with, um, and it's hard to tease apart at this point. You know what I mean? Like there was a time when I said to, to a patient the other day, I said, you know, there was a time when someone went to McDonald's um, and they sat down and it was actually ground beef and people got dressed up to do it. And it was once in a while. And the French fries were, you know, the size of the palm of my hand. Now McDonald's is on every single corner and I don't want to bash McDonald's. You know what I mean? So I'm not saying that to bash them, but you know, you have these eateries that are on every single corner and they're 99 cent meals. 
and they are loaded with added sugars, added salts, and added fats. I was just looking up some paper recently around an anti-carcinogenic pattern of eating, and it's like, okay, if we know that added salt increase the risk of some gastric cancers, why aren't we having that conversation, right? Because it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's like ingrained in our systems, and we have to unlearn some of these um, ungentle nutrition behaviors. <laughs> I mean, with all... I think we all just have so much to say in response to what you were just saying. <laughs> I, I mean, I have so many thoughts floating through my head. And one is around accessibility and what goes into accessibility. And one of those things, you know, about fresh food is it has a short shelf life. When we're talking about produce, fruits and vegetables, it goes onto your shelf and it lives and then it dies versus these packaged foods, these chips and cakes and cookies, they have shelf lives of one year, two years. I think a Twinkie is like a hundred years. And so those types of foods, it's easy to get into these areas that are more like food deserts um, because of that. And, and so I do think that it has to come from some sort of systemic change in order to really get fresh food into these areas. I, you know, I come from a family of farmers. Um, I have a lot of cousins that still farm. And one of them, he's the mayor of his town. I think maybe I've told this story once before in our podcast, but, uh, and I asked him, I said, you know, how many people are in your town now? He said, 621. Like, well, that's not that many. What, you know, what happened there? Used to be like thousands of people in this town. And he said, oh, well, you know, with the technology and everything these days, farmers don't need as many people to run their farms. So everybody's moved out. And what's happened there, though, is the local stores, the ice cream shops, everything have closed down. So the people who are left are left going into grocery stores that don't supply a lot of fresh food because of this shelf life problem. So they're eating frozen foods, packaged foods. They're growing fresh food to feed the rest of our nation. But unless they're growing it in their own personal smaller garden, they're not getting fresh fresh foods. And so I do think about this issue of, of the real accessibility of like even getting those foods into people where they are and, and how we do that in a way that's sustainable. Also, just to add to that, when Maya was talking about the subsidies, again, systemic. So, and I'm sure all the listener, all of your listeners know this, but the three crop crops that are subsidized the most are wheat, soy, and corn. And guess what those are used for? All what you're saying, the chips, the cakes, and and the the cookies, right? And to feed, you know, factory farmed animals, right? So I th I think that what Maya is talking about in terms of systemic changes, how can we begin to subsidize? And that's at the tune of what twenty five billion a year, Maya. I mean, it's it's insane. That money could be used towards your your family farmers, right? And and that that can change the whole the whole dynamic here and changes the whole dialogue. The other thing that I learned from one of the family farmers on my trip, uh, one of my many trips, uh, <laughs> was that when we think about farmers, we don't realize that much of our food is not actually coming from family farms, right? And so even the face of farming has shifted. And if the largest crop subsidies are not even going to food that we consume on our plates, that's also a major question, 
right? And that goes back to Danielle to the question that you asked about, well, what's happening, right? So when we say farm to table, we're not talking about corn that's coming to our plates in its whole form, right? We're talking about corn that's being used for industry or corn that's being used to go into a food product. And that's a totally different conversation. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of how much we have lost our relationship to our plate. I think it was like 40% of our food came from quote victory gardens during world war II, where, you know, supply chains were so impacted that people just started growing food in their gardens. And I think about that to happen today. It's like, we're, we're so out of touch, you know, like how do you grow a tomato? Like nobody, nobody really knows. Like, does, do we even have seeds? Like, it's just like, we're so out of touch with our plate. And it makes me think about our priorities. I've had this theme in my head a lot lately of whatever you prioritize is where the action goes, where your energy goes. And I don't think we necessarily use that filter enough to notice that, wow, my energy is going here. That means it's a priority and ask ourselves, do I want this to be a priority? Or if I ask myself, what are my priorities? Do my actions meet those? You know, I, I, I'm so grateful to be um, supporting WITS and this mission. And then here I am, you know, on a very privileged side where my kids go to a private school in Manhattan and I am fighting a completely treacherous uphill battle. And it it's brought so much like empathy for the work that you guys do because, you know, it's not politicized where I am because it's it's a private school so they can serve whatever they want and they can charge parents whatever they want to make a budget so i was trying to like literally help them understand that their actions speak to their priorities and after the conversation i got too emotional and i like cried on the phone with them and i was like i need i need to call them back and have my uh my calm about me because it just i i I kept saying, what you're telling me is that you are not prioritizing my child's health. That is what you are telling me. And to a group of people who I know want my child to not only be healthy, but to thrive and prioritize, you know, children's development and happiness and joy. And I'm so in love with this school. But how can you tell me that you are prioritizing all of that when your actions are are feeding my children veggie sticks, which you know, I walked them through the ingredient list. I'm like, there's no veggies in these. It's canola oil and cornstarch. And I feel for them because, you know, it's a, I have to deal with a lot of allergies. And she's like, you know, we're ordering snacks from Fresh Direct as we're like running to go pick up puke in the hallway. And I'm like, I get it. It's hard, but you, you're going to have to prioritize it. Otherwise it's, it's just not going to happen. And it's such a, um, self-fulfilling prophecy in this way where we're feeding this to our kids. And then, you know, studies have shown that a lot of these food sensitivities are because of gut permeability and dysbiosis. And then, you know, we're feeding children, as you said, Maya, these ultra processed foods, which can then lead to more gut permeability. And it's not, it's not to, um, you know, demonize a single food is to say like, what are you serving most of the time? And let's do that. I don't care if my kid has to eat the veggie sticks every once in a while. But like if you're not prioritizing nutrition, then it's going to be most of the time because I get it. Veggie sticks are easy to serve and the kids will eat them up. But it's like, you can't, 
I'm fighting that battle at home. I don't even like to use the word battle. I try and exemplify really healthy eating habits at home so they understand what foods help them feel the best. But if the school's not supporting that, it gets really difficult. And then I think about the work that you guys do and the school is where they're getting their healthiest meal or perhaps one of their healthiest meals. And then that's not even kind of resembling the food and nutrition that we hope for their kids. So I guess, I don't know. I, I, I end up in this place where it's exactly what you said, Maya. It's you have to be system changers, but like, where do you find your way in? Because as a culture, if we're not prioritizing farmers, we're not prioritizing nutrition, we're not prioritizing our health. I mean, it's so overwhelming. <laughs> it's super overwhelming. I was like, I heard you. I was like, you were like talking to my heart. You were like, I was like, Danielle is talking to my heart right now, right? You're like, you're not prioritizing the health of my kids. And what I thought when you said that was, yeah, right. We talk about priorities. And if we're like, you know, going to go out and we're going to look at this from a large scale perspective, yeah, we're not prioritizing the health of the nation, not us, the four of us, right? But really that's what's going on is that the health of the nation, and we see, you know what I mean? When we say that the country is sick and when we say that, you know, type two diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes, but it's now called type two because we see 12 year olds who have it. And we know that there's a 10 year incubation period for the development of that condition. Right. When we see places where there are no safe, walkable sidewalks, when we see that, you know, kids like their breakfast choices in certain areas are incredibly limited. Yeah. You're speaking to my heart. That's exactly right. We're not prioritizing the health of the country. Am I thrilled that I know Nancy? 100%. Am I really glad to be on the WITS board? Totally. Am I glad to go and sit in places that sometimes have been demonized and say like, I'm going to disrupt this. And then I am pleasantly surprised when they say, hey, actually we're innovating and we're trying to make some better for you options. And we're trying to shift the grains that we're using in some of these products and change the nutrient profile. And then, you know, I sit back and I say, okay, if I'm thinking about the larger picture and I'm thinking about the long term, I'm like, why not let the larger companies invest their billions, make the changes and be the leading force here, right? Because we need some, we need, we need it to be done. Um, do I wish that uh, everybody was paid a livable wage so that they had time to get up and make scratch cooked food? 100%. 100%, because that's the other part of it, right? I mean, I don't know how much I cook every night, but that's because I like to. Um, and my fridge is always filled with produce because that's a priority for me. But I've got tons of nutrition education. I also have like culinary skills and I love flavor and temperature and texture. And I have patients who are like, I'm tired. I work 12 hours, you know, like that's not possible. And so then I'm like, okay, I'm actually working on a series. You guys will love this. This is just like for me personally, like what can I make from the dollar store? What can I make from Whole Foods? What can I make from the farmer's market? And I have to, right, to figure out that budget amount. Like what does it look like when we eat from different places and we're thinking about nutrient density? Because um, that's really what we're talking about, right? Is, you know, how do we get, just as you said, Danielle, the majority of the time, 
tons of nutrients on our plates. That's why Saqqara is so awesome, by the way. Meals that have 15 ingredients, <laughs> you know what I mean? And are like bursting with phytonutrients. I mean, let's get on track. Trying board. to make it easy. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> So I'm going to try to add some positivity to this, you know, very tough conversation. Because when you did, when you asked me first, I wanted to add on to what Maya said. And that is um, when we were fighting for more money for, for school meals. And this was, I guess, 2010. And at on Capitol Hill, we were having chefs asking them to prepare a meal for $1 for all of our, our congressmen and women and um, all of our politicians. Cause that is what is, that's how much money school meal, lunches have. And we were trying to get more and that's the food. And then with, with, even with salary, even with people staff to cook the food, it's, it's under $3. So there's that, that just everyone should know. And the, the child nutrition reauthorization act is up again for renewal. And so we are advocating obviously for more funds into that, um, for it's it's for WIC, it's for school meals, it's for it's for all of the feeding programs. But um, I actually, as you ask that question, the truth is, I see so much positivity every day in my work, and I can just share. This morning, I was in New York City at the Institute of Culinary Education, um, asked to present to what we call a cook camp, um, which is where we bring school cooks in to be trained on preparing meals from scratch. And we have a partnership with the Institute of Culinary Education where they you know, offer their space and their cooking um, classrooms. And I have been, I was asked to, to talk about the why of this work. And I started by sharing pretty much what we're sharing on this, on this conversation, you know, why we do this work and the, 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 you know, the, the rates of obesity and heart disease and everything else. And, um, and then we asked the, the members, so there were about 25 school cooks, mostly women, but women and men who were there for the day from public schools all around New York city. And, um, we asked them to then share why they do this work and the passion and the commitment, you know, against all odds, you guys, against, you know, low wages, as Maya said, poor, you know, ingredients that are poor ingredients, let's just say that. And they are there because they love their children. I mean, the, the things we heard, this it makes me happy to see the salad bar and to see them devour the salad bar. And all of these reasons, one woman said she left Wall Street um, and to, to go feed kids because she wanted to help kids to be more healthy and nutritious. And so it's just, it went on and on. And I was there with the head of school food and we just had tears in our eyes. In fact, the woman teaching had tears in her eyes. So this is happening. So they left that classroom and then went into a culinary room and they were making, I got pictures on my phone. I I had to leave to come to Camden, New Jersey, where I'm here also um, looking at schools and looking at the great work of some of, of scratch cooking of recipes that we put together and we're training here as well. So I'm seeing that every day. And I also, and it's small pockets, I know, Danielle. <laughs> and then just, and to lift up to just, I wanted to share what Sakara is supporting. Um, and these I, I, I want you guys to come and visit the next time you're in New York or in any of our cities, but you're supporting the work in New York. Um, we have culinary cooking classes for the kids in the schools called our Wits Labs. And all of the classes are recipes that they will also see in the cafeteria. So they are sort of our best marketing tool to to encourage children to eat the, the healthy school lunches. And they are the happiest, happiest classes you will ever, I mean, children who are so excited to to cut kale and then to eat a kale salad and, to, and coming back for seven. So this little tasting of kale and that goes to kale, the vegetarian chili, because they're making it themselves. And you all are supporting that initiative, the Wits Lab initiative. So that's something to really be happy about. But I just want to add one more thing to, to really, to shout out the great efforts in New York City. Was it yesterday or the day before I was on a call with 
you know, the mayor's office of food policy with um, the DOE, with the school food, the, the agency that we work with, it's actually called OFNS, the Office of Food and Nutrition Services, but with these folks talking about the food initiatives in New York City. And when you talk about putting your priorities in a, in a certain place, I mean, we have the perfect storm in our city right now. We have a mayor who is, who is, keeps a mostly vegan diet, who is food forward, who is thinking about it. We have a chancellor who is so like-minded, and we have the head of, of OFNS, um, Chris Chicarico, who also, they're, they're so incredibly like-minded and so wanting this change. And we're all coming together to do this. The meeting I was on was with agencies like myself, like small nonprofits, large nonprofits, city agencies who are coming together on these missions. And we were having authentic and deep conversations about how to do this. And, and the first step is, is talking about it and making these goals. And as you said, making it a priority. So I'm seeing this happen in New York and you know, if we can make it here, we can make it anywhere, right? So um, it's it's it, we are at a great place to make change, and it feels. I've been doing this for seventeen years. It's it's the best that I have felt about this work, and in seventeen years, I can't even say in a long time. In seventeen years, because it has been up against a lot of resistance, and then of course all the systemic issues and all the policies. But there's also been you know people resistance, and there's certainly a will right now. And to your point, if there's a will, there's a way, and I feel I feel really good about this. If you're here listening to this episode, you know by now that it is our mission to transform lives by putting you in the driver's seat of your own health. But we wanted to take it a step further and really help children understand what it means to prioritize their health and how to eat healthy. And in order to do that, we partnered with an amazing nonprofit called Wellness in the Schools, or WITS for short. WITS has an amazing and important mission to help eliminate obesity-related illnesses that begin in childhood. Their work focuses on the public school system, educating children, families, and educators on how to live a healthy lifestyle and eat nutritious foods. They make it more accessible by not only going directly into the schools, but also working around policy change. Health is something that every person and certainly every single child deserves. And we're so honored to be doing this work by their side. Not only does WITS work in public schools, but they also are committed to making changes around policies, budgets, etc. for long lasting change because healthy children become healthy adults. And we are so incredibly passionate about this topic and feel grateful to Wellness in the Schools for their work and know that every time you purchase from Sakara, you are helping us support Wellness in the Schools. But in honor of Giving Tuesday, we wanted to give you all the opportunity to donate yourselves directly to Wellness in the Schools. If you're interested and want to learn more, head to www.wellnessintheschools.org backslash donate to learn more and head to show notes for the direct link to their website. And can you talk a little bit about uh, the work that you're doing in school lunches in New York City with, you know, plant-based menus? And we're so grateful we get to be part of designing so many of those 
school lunches. Um, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that initiative? Cause it's just so amazing. Yeah. So this was recently announced and there's been um, great movement around it and this, and, and that initiative, it's the chef council um, and, and, the entire work around it is um, part of this, part of what I was just saying earlier about our mayor and our chancellor and our department and the office of school food, really, really um, not just talking about it, but making action. So um, we, they've asked wellness in the schools to put together a chef's council um, of about 10 chefs who are well-known and not so well-known, but to develop culturally relevant plant-based and scratch cooked recipes to be put on the New York City public school menu, and um, Sakara's Den, uh, Tyler, um, your your chef is is part of that, and she has submitted her ten recipes. So we have about ten chefs, um, ten recipes, and um, we're bringing so it's about a hundred recipes, which have, you know of course, will not be on the menu tomorrow. It's a long process that I want to be sure to share with everyone on, on this podcast. And, and um, But the process, I think, is going to be a, a very important and exciting one. Um, the recipes, of course, they have to follow a procurement list, which is I know is very challenging for Tyler. Um, and then from that procurement list, as I said, it's very limited. Um, they put together recipes. They go through all the nutritionals of OFNS. We work in a very iterative process to bring forward recipes to then taste with children. So this first year is simply tasting these um, plant-forward, culturally plant-based, culturally relevant, um, scratch-cooked recipes. We're, we're working in 60 schools around New York City and five parent groups, so one from each a group from each borough, um, to taste the recipes and to give us immediate feedback and with a an app, you know, a, a tech, you know, a tech platform. So we will know things like, does it taste like your mom's? Is it too salty, too sweet? You know, yes and no questions, but we want these, we want the kids, they're our best, our most important critics and their parents to tell us how they are, to tell Sakara that it's, you know, good enough or not good enough, to tell Rachel Ray, who's the chair of our council, to tell JJ Johnson, um, to let us know if these are recipes that, 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 you know, that are good enough for them. So right. we're doing that at for an the, entire year. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how healthy they are if the kids aren't going to eat them, right? Exactly, which is which is also why the, the the you know we say three things. Culturally relevant piece is so important that these the recipes are taste like food that they're eating at home with their moms and grandmoms and whomever else. Um, and so that that piece is incredibly important. And yeah, we have a great group of chefs, um, and they you know really representational of the of the children in the communities we serve. And the the vision for that is Mayor Eric Adams wants to institute plant-based Fridays, right? Where on Fridays or one day a week, the kids are eating plant-based meals. Is that correct? So actually the vision is even larger than that, that the, um, that we already have plant-based Fridays and Mondays. And so the idea here is that a new, there'll be new menu, seasonal monthly menu that is plant forward. Not every day will be, will be plant-based, but that we have all of these now plant-based recipes to choose from. Um, and again, it's, it's, it, I don't want to make it sound like it's that easy. There's, there are many, there are 1200 school buildings and that many, you know, school cooks times three, four, five. And they all need to be trained on the new recipes. And um, so it will be, it's going to be a, a slow rollout. But um, the idea is to have a plant-forward menu with all these plant-based recipes. And yeah, center of the plate as well as sides. So exciting. It is very exciting. <laughs> well, Whitney, I know you're dealing with a baby with an autoimmune disorder. And, you know, I'm sure that that brings so many other complexities to how you think about nutrition and what are some of the ways that you've 
I mean, you've been forced that like forced function to only serve the best and, and healthiest. You can't just like grab snack foods at the airport. So what have been some of your tricks? Um, one is, well, one is just having grace, knowing that you're not going to be perfect all the time and trying to let go of some of that guilt around it. Um, then I'd say having curiosity, digging in, learning as much as possible, um, making it a priority, exactly like what you were saying. So building time to learn, building in the time, whether it's listening to podcasts or following people in the space on Instagram who are having conversations around it. I started following a lot of people in the type one diabetes space. And, you know, I already follow people in the nutrition space who are talking about healthy eating. And I've, I tried all of these different philosophy. I've made him go low carb. I tried doing a hundred percent plant-based, which is really hard with a, to a toddler, you know, and went to these different extremes. And what I found at the end of the day that worked best for him was really what's healthy for him is the same as what's healthy for all of us. Like true healthy food, whole foods, organic, plant forward, getting enough nutrients. And it was just his birthday last weekend. We had a birthday party. And, you know, I've brought him to other kids' birthday parties and he sees the cake and he wants the cake. And if it's a traditional regular cake with a buttercream frosting, that combination between high carb and high fat really does a number on his blood sugar. And I'm sure it does a number on all of our blood sugars, That, but we just don't have that continuous glucose monitor strapped to us to be able to see it in real time happening like it happens with him. And so for his party, I had a friend recommend this great organic local baker who made a him a paleo cake with almond flour and coconut flour. It was a chocolate cake. He's obsessed with chocolate cake because it's in the Very Hungry Caterpillar book, which he loves. <laughs> and it walks through what the Very Hungry Caterpillar eats. And on Saturday, he eats one slice of chocolate cake and a lot of other things. And this cake was amazing. It was delicious and it didn't spike his blood sugar. And so I think it was that, you know, looking for the ingredients, testing different things, caring, prioritizing that can really make a difference. I love that because it's one of the things I'm trying to drive home to my kids' school is like, I'm not saying no cupcakes. Like I want my kids to have, like, I get it. We're just in this world where we're constant. It's always someone's birthday at school. It's always, you know, pizza days are fun. Like I get it. I'm not, I don't ever want my kids to feel like they can't have anything, but I think what I want to drive home the most is that we don't have to choose. Like you can eat the cake and let's focus on high quality ingredients, which I know is something, you know, you're passionate about too, Nancy and Maya is like, let's, let's like figure out what the kids want to eat and then let's do it. You know, let's cook it ourselves. And, you know, instead of it being this ultra processed food that's packaged, let's find ways to, to make it nutrient dense. Um, I'd say one of the other tricks that not tricks, but like one of the other things that I find really important is we use this lingo of like, I, the, the adult gets to decide what's on the menu, but you get to decide what you eat. So 
no dinner time anxiety because I remember that as a kid. I remember, you know, like I came from a generation, I used to eat a lot of dinners with my grandparents and it was like, you always eat everything on your plate. And, you know, it's like you didn't, I didn't have any autonomy when it came to how much I ate or what I wanted to eat. Nobody asked me how I was feeling or like, how are you listening to your body? So really, I'm really trying to cultivate this healthy relationship to their plates where, okay, mom decides what's on the menu, but you can eat as much or as little of any of it as you want. And even though sometimes I'm like, well, you just eat a little bit more broccoli before you, you know, ask for more crackers. It's like, I really, and I still do that sometimes, but you know, I just can't help myself. But for the most part, I really try and let them navigate and let them learn to listen to their body. Like if she wants more of something, I'm like, oh, is that what your body's telling you? Is that you want more of that? So she can start to cultivate that relationship because I feel like it's so, at least when I was growing up, it was so like, this is what you're doing because we said so. And so I didn't learn to cultivate that inner body intelligence, which we talked a lot about. Maya, since you're so focused on not only holistic nutrition and everything from farmers to how we think about our relationship to our plates to childhood nutrition. What are some of your tips, tricks, thoughts, ethos around anyone listening who is a parent or um, helps to take care of children to help the children have a great relationship to nutrition, to their plate, to their food? What are some of your, your thoughts and tips around that? So one of the first things that I often say in like a family nutrition or pediatric nutrition setting is that, and I think Whitney said this, is we want kids to eat, right? And we want kids to eat so that they can fuel their bodies. It's the job of the adult or caregiver to decide what, where, and when. This is very Ellen Satter, right? And for the child to decide if and how much. Um, and so what I say to parents and caregivers is it's as much about modeling as it is about consistency, right? So if we want to create a pattern of eating that is centered around fruits, vegetables, in their whole and minimally processed form, then we want fruits and vegetables in their whole and minimally processed form to be available the majority of the time, right? Like you said, Danielle, it's like, what are you doing in the majority? However, here's the caveat, you have to give yourself grace. Because as I say to my patients all the time, life will life, life will happen, <laughs> surprises will come. And so within kind of the overall framework, we want space for flexibility, right? Because a life of any one particular food over and over again is not what we're striving for. What we're striving for is diversity in eating. We're striving for an abundance of nutrient-rich foods that are, you know, really rich in antioxidants and phytonutrients. And so if we want plants at the center, that's the majority of the time. And then there's plenty of space for everything else. I was in a talk this weekend and one of the chefs said, he said, I really love single ingredient foods. And I thought that's such a relatable, like a realistic way to talk about it, right? So like, is this a single ingredient food? Of course you put meals together, but what are the ingredients that you're using to put into that dish? And so what I say to parents and caregivers is um, work within your budget, 
and budget is financial, but it's also emotional and it's also time, right? Because we, we all have different ways that we budget our time, our emotions and our finances. So work within your family budget for all those things. And then think about how you can use single ingredient foods the majority of the time, right? And how you can get them to show up on a plate in a very flavorful way. We love to season our animal proteins for people who eat animal proteins. You've got to season your vegetables, right? There's no way that a dish is going to be incredibly delicious if you haven't seasoned your vegetables, right? So we want to give our plants as much love as we give everything else um, and consistency, right? And throw perfection out the window. Like that's, those are I my like tips. That. <laughs> it's so important because in a world where, you know, like I was saying earlier, the airplane is going <laughs> to offer cookies to my kids. Like there's so much out of our control and I never want my kids to have anxiety. Like I'm going to have the anxiety for them. I don't want them to have anxiety around their plate. Like my daughter now, if I, if she asks if she can have something like if we're at, when we were just at the airport, she was like, how about this? And then I picked it up. She's like, is it organic? And I'm like, Oh, I, I want to make sure, you know, that <laughs> I'm looking for like so much more than that. And also you know, that she doesn't have anxiety around what that means. I don't, I don't think she does. Like, I think she's still even learning what organic means, of course, but um, yeah. And I'm so happy you mentioned the work of, um, what did you say? Her name was Ellen Satter. Yes. I didn't know that that's where that came from. Her work looks so interesting. I just yes. looked it up real, really, really quickly. So I, I love that as a resource. It's like really focused on helping our kids have a healthy relationship to their food. And making dinner time a joy, like instead of this place where like there's pressure, because I think that's what happens a lot of the time is there's so much pressure to eat or, you know, have this and not that or eat your whole plate. But really, how do we make dinner time joyful? Yeah. First, I was just going to say, I love that. I think all of you talked about grace and, you know, we with at wellness in the schools and in my own life, we never use, use the word diet. It's, it's all about lifestyle diets do cause if you fail on your diet you go off it right but also just but even when you have a certain lifestyle if you if you don't you know don't do what you're supposed to do in that lifestyle it is you know you can fall off and so I, I love saying you know having grace but giving yourself grace frankly but my kids are now older but we at dinner time and you know both my husband and I cook or take turns or what have you and one of the we give a lot of tips to the families that we work with and one of the tips is to you know prepare your vegetables weekly like at a time that you have the time so not you're like rushing home because that is one of the most time consuming things of cooking right is to wash and cut and be, you know have the vegetable and season and have your vegetables ready so we do that and we, we recommend that to families of course come home from work and the kids are coming from school and everyone's exhausted everyone is always starving right everyone is starving when you first walk in the door so that was as a great trick and tip is that we just put out vegetables. And so then by the time you get to dinner, if they don't eat their vegetables, it doesn't matter because they've been snacking on vegetables while they're waiting. And it doesn't work all the time. But my kids, again, who are now older, at one point said to me, mom, can we have snacks, like real snacks? And I was like, what do you mean? I have all these fruits and vegetables out. But for them, what, as they got older, what they started to see were the snacks of the airplane saying, we've got pretzels and whatever else. So I thought that was sort of funny that my kids associated snacks with something that was packaged, mm -hmm. you know, instead of a wonderful, you know, fruits and vegetables. So I just wanted to share that. It's such a great tip, though. Different grocery stores do offer like pre-cuts now. Mm -hmm. So yeah. your broccoli and your cauliflower and florets, your carrots already put into little carrot chips things like that, or, or squash that's already in zoodles. And 
I find that if you can have some quick and easy recipes or that use a pre-cut, I'm much more likely to make a veggie focused dish if that piece is already done for me. So I like to get those as a quick cheat to make some some dishes. And then even there are some great sauces out there. It doesn't have to be overly complicated to put together that maybe add in a can of beans and really you've got something quick and easy put together. I love that, Whitney. Like, I love what you just said. It doesn't have to be overly complicated. The other day I gave a patient of mine a frozen meal list. Everyone's like, what? No, really. So it was, what are the frozen single item vegetables that you can buy and how do you prepare them? So it was like a bag of frozen broccoli. You have to read the ingredients. It should just say broccoli. You take the broccoli, you put it on the sheet pan, you put it on 450 degrees, drizzle olive oil and your seasonings. Now you have crunchy broccoli, right? Um, but yeah. that was the entire, totally. like, like here are some real life hacks because sometimes, and this, you know, I have a lot of patients who are doctors. Um, and so they work overnights, you know, and they have these long hours and fresh produce is not happening in their, free, in their refrigerator. However, if we can do those single item, you know, canned box jarred frozen, frozen. things, right? Mm -hmm. So like dry lupini beans, that's amazing, you know, or a box of chickpeas, also amazing. A can of hearts of palm from a sustainable source, rinsed, also fantastic. So I try to get creative with people because it's not and sometimes even better, yeah. it's hard to, as Whitney was talking about, it's hard to get fresh produce everywhere. And so sometimes when we're talking about access, being able to get organic broccoli can be a lot easier from the freezer section than it can from the fresh section. I just got great tips. Thanks, Maya. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, but that's also too, right? That's around the hierarchy of food, right? Because mm -hmm. I feel like we also attach morality to eating. And Nancy, like you said, it's like, if you're on the diet or doing the thing, then you're good. And if you're off of it, then you're bad. But people make choices that are helpful and harmful, and it still has nothing to do with their character. So like I always say, food does not come with a side of shame or guilt. So true. I'm going to quote you. That. I love that. <laughs> I think that's a great segue into light work. Would love for either either of you or both of you, each of you to give a light work for our Sakara Light listeners. I feel like stealing so many things from, from what all of you have been saying. I mean, this, this having of grace is huge and it, it kind of goes hand in hand with some of the advice that we, we give all the time, which is baby steps. Like don't try to do all of this at once. What is one like really, really small thing that you can do that can make a, a ultimately a large impact. And also to the point, I remember when someone said to me, you have to get to a place where it's like brushing your teeth. So you do things like you brush your teeth every day, right? You get up in the morning, you brush your teeth. So what are those things that, that are used to be so hard, but just become normalized? And I, know, I think I'm contradicting myself. I don't know how you get there with the baby steps, but even meditation, you start doing it every day. It's like, wow, I didn't meditate today. Oh my gosh, my breath smells. Like, like you, you really start to feel it. Like you didn't meditate that day or walking or, and then certain food choices. I just think, and I'm, I'm probably not giving the easiest or best answer, but starting small to then get big. Starting small so that it becomes this habit like brushing your teeth. I think it's so important what you're saying. It's like, 
in order to not want to throw in the towel, you have to notice small changes. You have to celebrate small changes. You have to embrace small changes that equal systemic change that equal, you know, as Maya said, you know, system changers, like that is, that is how we start to change our own systems is by taking those small steps. Maya, what about you? My light work is centering of self. I talk about this with my patients a lot. Um, We often talk about what is self-care and what does that look like? And what I actually have come back to with so many people is how do you center yourself in your health and wellness journey? And so it's going to look different for everyone, but really being comfortable with centering yourself. Because I know as a care provider that when I'm centered, that I can do more for others. Um, So I would put that out for folks to center themselves. And what does centering themselves mean for you? Does that mean like putting yourself like making sure that you're you're caring for yourself or does it mean like getting balanced and centered all of that (laughs) so it is making sure that there is time for you to laugh time for you to cry time for you to play um that you honor all of your emotions that you create space and time to nourish your body Um, and that's nutrition, that's grounding work and it doesn't have to be big, right? So like I say to people, I'm not talking about like some huge spa day. It can be going to a city park and daring to take your shoes off and stand in the grass and take five breaths. It can be saying, I'm going to walk around the block. It can be walking into a grocery store and for someone who's never packaged, uh, purchased frozen broccoli saying, I'm going to take myself off the hook and say, I can use frozen broccoli, you know what I mean? As a way to get more vegetables into my pattern of eating. So it is prioritizing yourself within your health and nutrition journey so that you can be fully nourished. Beautiful. I love it. You're really making me think about maybe like one of the biggest issues with where we are in terms of chronic conditions in this country and ultra processed foods is what you just said is pretty radical, right? Like we're not taught to prioritize self-care at all. And so maybe that's one of the reasons it's so hard to make positive food choices is because we don't look at it as self-care. And even if we did, we don't prioritize it. So I love that as the light work, making sure we're taking, we're prioritizing our self-care and putting ourselves at the center of, and it really is so, so full circle because the original, like when I opened, I talked about this theme of what we prioritize is where we take action. Like our actions represent what we prioritize. So really making it, you know, representative of like, are your actions representing what you actually truly prioritize? This really, we just went full circle, guys. Nice job. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's good. <laughs> oh, it's such an honor to have you guys on the podcast. And I know I speak for myself, Whitney, and our entire Sakara team. We are truly honored to, you know, be able to support both of you and the entire Wits Foundation and all of your efforts. So thank you so much.
Well, thank you guys. I should just say that we it's, we do not do this work alone. And I it, it feels so incredibly safe to be supported by organizations like you guys and by Maya as a board member. Um, we, we cannot do this alone. So thank you guys. And I'm honored to be in everyone's presence here today. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing, Nancy. I do have to tell you, you know, I reference WITS all the time. And I actually reference Sakara quite a bit as well. Um, and so it is a true marriage. This is a case where we see two wonderful organizations coming together to work for the you know better of all people, uh, especially in New York and across the nation. Thank you so much. We appreciate you both. It was so great to have you both today. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Saqqara Signature Nutrition Program, head to saqqara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Saqqara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.